Well, my name is Trev, and uh, I'm very happy to be delivering to you uh, God's Word this morning. I am the pastor here at this point, and uh, this has been a, a great series. I want to start off, I, my slide presentation isn't working quite like I want it to, um, so you might have to help me there, Rob, with uh, putting things through. Um, we're in a we're in a series that really can be quite controversial for mer- for many, and I want to I want to preclude this by telling you a few stories to help us laugh at ourselves or at me. It's your choice um, as we kind of dig into this idea of marriage, which can be really honestly controversial or or soothing, depending on kind of your approach to it. I think from a cultural perspective, there's a lot of things that have been happening, and then. From within inside the church, there's, there's different perspectives on this going on, and, and my hope and my prayer has, has been that the Holy Spirit would just, just calm us down as we listen to what we think the Bible says about marriage. Um, here at Urban Grace, and I think I've even started to change my language about this, rather than saying we, we hold a high view of marriage, I want to say that we hold a right view of, of marriage, meaning that we hold the view that the scripture holds. So if it's got a high view of marriage, then we'll hold a high view of marriage. If it holds a moderate view of marriage, then we'll hold a moderate view of marriage. But the truth is there's a lot in the Bible about marriage, and so it is appropriate to talk about it um, regularly. Um, I've, since I can remember, so I'm starting to remember less and less, um, but since I can remember, I wanted to get married. And I, I, I know this because my first year of Bible college, here's some FYI, never do this, it doesn't matter where you are, first year of Bible college, I thought it would be awesome to take on Greek. Um, I, I lasted, I think, one class, and then I was out. But I'm sitting in Greek class with a lot of third and fourth year students, men, women of all uh, shapes, sizes, colors, everything. Um, I didn't know what I was doing. It's the first week. I don't really know anyone. And so the professor says, we're going to get to know one another. So how about you tell us your name, what year you're in, and something about you that no one really knows. I mean, when you've got a big group of people, this is no problem, right? So I come. I think it's really, I think it's really adorable to say, hi, my name is Trevor. It's my first year, and I want to get married. And I swear to you, I saw every single second, third, fourth, year woman write down, make sure not to talk to Trevor ever. <laughs> it was stupid. Eight years later, I married my best friend. Uh, it was a great day in my life. I can still remember that day. Uh, it's been 15 years that I've been married this May, and it hardly feels like 15 years. Um, it's been 15 of the best years of my life. I would say that. She is my best friend, my wife, Leslie. Uh, ironically, the light has highlighted her there, so you can see her perfect. Ah, that's what you hear in the background, right? I know, she's going to kill me later. Um, so I, have, I, I come, honestly, I come approaching this like I've always wanted to be married. I've always wanted to understand what the Bible says about marriage. And, and so you're going to probably hear that even from the way I speak. I don't have painful experiences from this. I've said even through the process of church planting and and the, the tough things in life, that my marriage has been w- the, the best thing in that whole process. That if I didn't have the marriage that I have, I don't, I don't think I would be where I am. So I do come from that approach. I'm, I'm not going to say, though, that those 15 years were the easiest years of my life. Because they weren't. And that wasn't necessarily because Leslie was hard to deal with. Because marriage just has a unique way of pushing your buttons. We sang a song about idols. Right? Get off your knees and stop worshiping things. Marriage has this weird way. It's like this giant mirror into your life that reveals all the selfish ways that you are. That, that's preaching a different sermon. I, I don't know where you stand when it comes to marriage. I was at the barbershop the other day sitting next to um, a total stranger. Um, it's an all-male barbershop, really. Um, that's kind of the idea Guys want to get there and talk about whatever they want. So the guy says, first conversation, you married, bro? To which he responds, I I can't even say it, expletive no. Use your imagination. I'm sure you don't have to. I'm sure maybe you thought that at some point. 
I mean, it was like, it, it was it literally as if he said, are you, like, do you worship Satan? That, that could have been what he said, and there would have been a similar response. You know, do you love murdering people? That could have been a similar response. That was the violence by which he responded, as if marriage somehow had this unique way of crushing the life out of everyone. But perhaps that's you this morning. The thought of marriage, the thought of this idea of one man, one woman, absolutely makes you cringe and is terrified. If that's you this morning, I want you to listen carefully to what I think Scripture has to say. Our text this morning is not without its controversy. Our text this morning has been badly misused, badly abused, and has resulted in bad abuse. Um, I remember doing, I think it was my first marriage ceremony, and we were looking through scriptures, and so, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a you know, a, a pastor, so I, I'm like, well, we should have scripture in there, and we should read scripture, and so I said, well, let's look at, let's look at some scriptures that talk about marriage, and, you know, I look, at, at that time, I didn't really know, and I was like, oh, let's go to the concordance and look at wife and husband. And so I look at Ephesians 5, and we, we read it, and the first thing is about marriage. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And, and I remember the girl looking, oh, let's not read that. Let's not read that at a marriage ceremony. That doesn't, and I'll be honest, she didn't really hold any convictions about the Bible, um, I don't believe she was even a Christian. I know that because she became a Christian later. I, I don't know if her views necessarily changed. But it, it doesn't take very long to read that and hear how terrible that sounds. But I don't like being taken out of context. I don't think you like being taken out of context. And I think sometimes what happens is we read this completely isolated of the entire letter that Paul was writing. We don't see it as the, the four, fifth chapter, almost the sixth chapter of a fairly lengthy letter. And so my hope is that we can not take Paul, the writer of this, out of context, but we can understand where he's coming from. And so let me explain a little bit before we even get into it what the book of Ephesians is about. Ladies, you're going to know if I'm right on this, if you're studying this, right? And you, I think you're on Ephesians chapter 5, so you're probably Monday and Wednesday going to rip the sermon apart, which is fine. That's great. I love that you're in the Word. But, but here's what happens is the, the book of Ephesians is really divided into six chapters. Chapters were an addition to, to Scripture to help us find things. That's all they were there for. And, and really chapters 1 to 3, if you look at them, it's how someone becomes a Christian. It's the description of how somebody actually comes to know and understand who Jesus Christ is. That's why at the very beginning, the, it's all about who Jesus is and how Jesus has a plan through all eternity and, and Jesus devi devised this plan for you. He actually uses the word predestined there to help us understand that Jesus had a plan from the very beginning of time for your life to, to create you into a new person who is radically changed in every part of life. And then in chapter 3, or chapter 4, the writer at Paul actually begins to unpack this and said, now that you believe, now that you understand that your life is radically changed, is radically different, here's what I want to do. I want to show you some implications of this. Now, can you see why this could be dangerous if, if you don't understand that, you know, this idea of wives submitting to husbands, that's the first part of our passage, why that would sound so abrasive to us is actually, Paul, it's not a surprise if you've been reading the text, because Paul says you need to submit to all kinds of things as a Christian. First of all, you submit to Jesus Christ. And I would say that if you are hearing this this morning, you think maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're still testing this out. Maybe you don't really understand all the implications of this, and, and you hear that, I would say, that will only make sense when you first understand that a Christian is described as someone who has completely submitted every single 100% part of their life to Jesus, who now defines what we say, do, think, act, how we're married, when we get to have sex, those kind of things. If you understand that that's what a Christian is, not someone who has decided upon some sort of moral code. And like in some ways, I, I want to say like, you're going to hear this differently if you think this is a bunch of morals. In fact, if you think it's morality, I would say don't listen to that part of it. Because the writer never expects everyone to understand it. 
just blank. Like, like this is all places, all times, all peoples. He says, if you believe that Jesus Christ is God, if you believe that the price that he paid on the cross was the price personally paid for you, if you have completely submitted all of your life, all your thought, all your sin, all your hopes, and all your hopelessness to him, then hear that there's a way that you can mimic your relationship with him to the world. But if not, perhaps this doesn't apply to you. Perhaps this is not simply a moral code for us to understand, and that's a huge mistake that we so often make. And so let's look first. Thanks, Rob. I appreciate that. The basis of marriage. I'm going to start backwards and go forwards. Amen? Right? Anyone do that? Um, that's not because I want to take this text out of context, but that's because the people that would have originally heard this knew the text that this was based on. Okay, that makes a big difference as to how you can talk, right? 25, 30 years ago, you could not say, send me an email, right? Nobody knows what you'd be talking about then. Now you say, send me an email. Someone goes, how about a text, right? Because we, we have... We're familiar with those terms. We're familiar with that stuff. The original hearers of this particular passage would have been familiar with some of these texts. They would have understood. I want to show you what I mean by that. Okay, here's, here's the first one. This text is actually based in Ephesians 5. Why don't I read it out for you first? And then I'll explain it. So in Ephesians chapter 5, if you don't have a Bible, would you raise your hand and someone would kindly, one of our ushers will bring you a a Bible. If that's your first Bible, please keep it uh, and bring it back next week. Um, next week is even more controversial, and the week after that is also controversial. So you're going to want to come back to hear some of these things and to argue with me in your brain. <laughs> not here. Notice I said not here. In your brain, you can argue with me. That's fine. Or after. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Listen to this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. How many of you just cringed even hearing that? It's hard to hear. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives who submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without any spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of God. We believe this still applies to us. I want to show you how. But as we get into this, I want to show you this this particular verse that it's really all hinged on. If you've ever heard me do a wedding ceremony or, or if I've done your wedding ceremony, I will say this and these words because they are the basis from which all of this teaching comes. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This is a direct quote from Genesis chapter 22, verse 24. That's what Ephesians says as well. Almost verbatim. Look how close those are together. That rarely happens in Scripture, by the way, where it's like a verbatim uh, quote. But I want you to see that that's not the only place. Um, here in 1 Corinthians, the same writer, Paul, is actually using the same phrase again, Therefore, as it is written, for as it is written, the two will become one flesh. That passage is talking about people, Christians, who are actually um, having sexual relationships with prostitutes. And he says, don't you know the original Genesis 22, 24? Where it says, this is what sex does. It unites you to someone else. You can't just 
glue yourself to someone in this kind of relationship without some sort of implication. She uses it again as the basis for understanding uh, sexual purity. I want you to see this one as well. Matthew 19. This is Jesus Christ himself being quoted. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Four times we see it almost direct quoted. I think it's important. I think we need to pay attention when there's three different, four different spots, two different writers who give us the same kind of information. So what, what does this actually mean? Well, I think this is the basis for all marriage. This is the basis for all marriage. A, a, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There is interwoven in here all kinds of things. It's interesting that, that it's a, a man is asked to leave his father and mother. I experienced this <laughs> as a married man. It's, uh, it's, it's, it seems to be important that there's a call upon the men to establish something and create something. And it goes back to this illusion in Genesis where God gave man, before Eve was even created, he gave Adam, he said, work and keep the garden. He wanted him to create something. He wanted him to initiate something originally. He wanted him to take care of the garden. He wanted him to take care of. This is not, he, he didn't isolate women from this or Eve from this in the original account. He just said, I want you to take care of it. Actually, the word nurture comes from this idea of, of gardening. Culture actually comes from gardening. You ever see like, oh, those, those plants are cultured. That means to, to take some raw material and create something with it. To make something out of nothing. So where there wasn't a marriage, now there is a marriage. There is an imperative here that what marriage is, is it's a creation of a new family. I probably don't have to necessarily explain that to you. Right? There's something going on here. And it, it does say he created them male and female. So this is where we say, yes, our definition of marriage is one man, one woman. It does come from these places. And he will hold fast to his wife. I've never once heard someone say to me, oh, I'm sorry, I can't make it. I'm holding fast to my wife. I've never heard that in my entire life. It's not a phrase we use at all. But... If you're in a Hebrew culture, this is what you hear. A man will leave his father and his mother and be glued to his wife. This actually starts to elude what sex is for. Sex is like glue. Don't take the metaphor too far here either, right, okay? Okay, help me out. Be nice to me. But there is this sense in which sex is an adhesive given as a gift from God. This is why there's so much baggage with sex partners that you don't really want to be married to. Because it's, it's adhesive. There's a stickiness factor to this that should not simply be messed around with. It is a gift given to marriage to help glue a marriage together, to help it hold fast. So again, what I don't want you to hear is that don't have sex outside of marriage because it's immoral. I want you to say don't because don't mess around with the natural glue, the gift of glue that God has given to marriages to help them hold fast. This is honestly my personal experience. That it helps unite us together. I mean, we never want to hear someone else talk like this. I never want to hear my parents tell me, hey, we're holding fast this afternoon, so give us some space. <laughs> right? Never, ever, ever. And my, my, my daughter's pretending she can't hear anything that I'm saying right now. She's looking down. Look at her. Love that kid. Okay, you don't want to hear that, but that's what it's for. That's what it's for. Okay, so this is, again, the, the, the basis of marriage. And the two shall become one flesh. Right? You, you glue two pieces of wood. We've got some woodworkers in the audience. Right? You glue two pieces of wood, and eventually they just act like one piece of wood. That's, that's the idea. This is why even when I talk about marriage um, counseling, what I will tell you is, like, let's play this out. The two schedules become one schedule. 
you don't start thinking of two separate schedules, you start thinking of one schedule. You don't start thinking of two different jobs, you, you think of one unit, one family unit here. Depending on how you do it, I say, okay, maybe you do have separate bank accounts, but I want you not to think of these as two separate bank accounts, but as one bank account together, united. Why do I say that? Because that's the easiest way to do life? I don't think sometimes it is. Sometimes it's the hardest thing you can possibly do. But this is what the Bible talks about when we speak of marriage. It's a friendship. So these are building. These weeks are building. So if you're like, this is your first week here, perhaps this is, this is, this is a way of asking you to go back and hear what we've already talked about when it comes to singleness and hear what we've talked about when it comes to friendship because what we're doing here is we're kind of building this idea that, that marriage you, you start single, you start thinking by yourself, and then you develop friendships, and friendships is about love, and then perhaps, if the opportunity comes your way, you enter into a marriage covenant. When I do marriage ceremonies, I don't say, we're here to perform a marriage contract, because it's not a contract. I love to watch these lawyer shows. Recently, I watched a lawyer show talking about a prenuptial agreement, and it was a whole show about how I want what I want and you want what you want. And then there's confusion as to how marriage doesn't really work or people don't want to get married. Well, when it's a contract, it doesn't make sense, right? But when it's a covenant, and what a covenant is, formalized process that the two will become one. That my needs, I'm not in this to meet my needs, I'm in this to meet your needs. I'll tell you, that's far more controversial than anything else I could ever say in our culture. What if someone said, why are you getting married to her? And you said, so I can serve her for the rest of my life. Dudes will look at you like you are crazy. Women. Someone says, why are you getting married to him? So I can serve him and his needs for the rest of my life. They will tell you you're crazy. And you better not do it, or you'll run into some major trouble. But that's exactly the picture of marriage that's given in the Bible. Not only is it a, a deep friendship, not only is it a covenant, but it's about otherness. It's not about you, silly. I mean, this is what's so crazy. Even Christians get this wrong all the time. I, I grew up as a Christian. Okay, so I, I come at this as a Christian, and I'll tell you, when I was in Bible college and I said that stupid thing like, I want to get married, I thought I was so noble. I thought the ladies would be just draped all over me. Oh, man, he's so selfless. Man, can you imagine a guy? I bet you he really thinks about serving other people, and when I'm tired and pregnant and don't feel pretty, he's just going to wash my feet and paint my toenails and all this stuff, and no, they weren't thinking that. They're thinking, this guy simply wants an easy way to have sex. I know it. I knew that's what they were thinking, which is why they wrote down my name and said, make sure you don't talk to him. <laughs> but as Christians, we think that this is what it's about. It's about us. So I meet someone that I like. I meet someone that meets my needs. I meet someone that I think's pretty. I meet someone that I want to spend the rest of my life with. And then we're confused when those feelings sometimes, and they will, by the way, they will drop down in levels of importance. Those things go away. They go up, they go down. But the, the, the view of marriage here is, is about service. And, and let me show you how. We've got a couple minutes left. So what does this mean? Let's look at instructions for wives. You ready for this? Again. Very controversial. If, if I was writing this personally, I'd probably put this secondary in some ways, but we're, we're not in the same kind of culture as Paul, and he, he wasn't actually that worried about this because he had basically said in the previous verse, look, everyone's got to submit to everyone. And actually, in Ephesians chapter 5, you see a list of three different relationships where people have to submit to various institutions that God has allowed in this world. The first one is marriage. You'd have to submit within marriage, not necessarily to each other in exactly the same way, but submit to the role that God has called people to. And then children and parents, there's, there's, there's roles there. Like he asked 
children and parents to submit to one another, but not in exactly the same way. Like my kids don't come to me and say, well, the Bible says that God calls us to mutually submit to one another, so that means I get to tell you what to do, right? Wrong. That's not what that means. It means you're a perfectly equal partner in sight of God in this role and relationship, but it does mean that God has allowed me the authority to lead you as a family. And then probably more controversial for some is this idea of, of bosses. That's what it says. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, it talks about submitting to the institutions of, of where you're at work-wise. So let me say, like, when, when it says, wives, submit to your husbands, that's not an isolated verse from the rest of the context. That's a verse that reminds you that as a Christian, you're going to submit to someone. In fact, you cannot be a Christian if you don't understand the idea of submission. And here's why. Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior. That's what Christians believe. And it says everyone, everyone one day, regardless of whether you want to or whether you don't, you will submit to Jesus as the authority. That's how the Bible talks about life. In Philippians, I believe it's chapter 2 or 3. You will, your knee will bow in submission to Jesus. The only question is, will you do it willingly or will you do it with your hands kind of bound behind your back unwillingly? You have those two responses to God. That's, a, that's an amazing thing. This, this passage, though, has been terribly uh, misused in the fact that lots of men have loved to, to quote this to women. That's not how to use this text. This is something that has to be done from a woman's perspective. And guys, if you've been married or in a relationship, you know you can't really make a woman do anything she doesn't want to do. Right? And if you do, you'll have to use force, which is what gets guys in domestic violence. This is, this, this is talking about something that only a woman can say, you know what, I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to do this. I'm willing to do this if Jesus, uh, since I already submit to Jesus Christ as my Savior, in the context of marriage, I'm actually willing to submit to my husband's, and the word is headship. Now again, let's define what headship means. Headship simply means leadership. There's a connection to Jesus Christ here. So this headship, if you think of what Jesus has done, and now I, I know this is, this is a complicated issue, but think of Jesus, our head. We've talked about Jesus being our Savior. He does not demand obedience. He simply asks, will you follow me? Are you willing to follow me? Here at Urban Grace, we don't demand that you obey Jesus. We ask willingly, do you want to follow Jesus Christ? There's no one at the door that won't let you out unless you decide to follow Jesus. Sorry, you'll have to go back to the back of the line until you decide. No, there's none of that here. It's a wrong understanding of, of submission. This is a willingness to follow your husband's leadership in a marriage. And it's a broken leadership, isn't it, guys? It doesn't say, if he's a really great leader, then follow him. It doesn't say, if he's better at leading than you, then follow him. In fact, I tell this flat out in marriage counseling. The reality is, the way I believe women are wired, they're fine by themselves most of the time. I mean, when God creates Adam and Eve, he does not create Eve first and then Adam. He says, creates Adam, and he's like, this guy needs some help. So I will create someone who's capable of helping. An equal partner who's capable of helping her husband. And it does all go wrong because we're selfish. And so some guys will read this and say, well, I'm the head, so what I say goes. That's not how Jesus uses his headship. He doesn't do that. He doesn't pull rank on you and, and demand this. He gently invites and asks and says, if you don't want to, there's really, it's up to you. And so this is not a text, I think, that's appropriate for guys to hear. This is only a text that girls can willingly hear if they want to. Women, 
wives. Again, it's still, I, I know this can still be confusing. And so we want to consistently lay this out and, and, and say, let's talk this through. Let's figure out how this actually looks. And it's amazing as, I, as Leslie, and, and Leslie, Leslie is an um, equal participant as we do um, counseling together. We don't, I don't try not to anyways. I try not to do it by myself because I'm just far less without her. She brings so much to the table. But this is a hard thing to understand. We consistently say, okay, well, how does that actually play out? Well, this is one of the reasons why we have city groups is we want this to be a place where we can discuss this in a sane, you know, respectable way. We're not here to demand this. We're here to just talk this through. Said if, if we believe that Jesus' word is real and right, then we've got to pay attention to how this looks. And I always say, it, it's been badly abused and misused over the centuries. Badly. And I apologize to any one of you wives who have been caught in some sort of abusive relationship and some husband has said to you, why don't you submit to me? I would say, you have every right to say, why don't you love me? I'm having a hard time submitting because you're having a hard time reading your Bible, that's why. You just read the next couple of verses, you see that it's absolutely impossible to demand obedience from your wife if you read the context. But it's still been taken out of context. Headship, my friends, is not to be used for selfish purposes. Remember, it's for otherness. You're to use the natural authority. And it does not say husband should be a head. It says the husband is the head. This eliminates anyone from saying, well, who are we going to have lead this thing? Are we going to co-lead it? Are we going to have the best skill set to lead it? Actually, Scripture just makes it clear. No one decides this. This has already been decided by God. The question is, what kind of head will he be? And the emphasis is not on the lady. It's actually on the man in the marriage. And we've never made excuses about this. People, I know people have turned away from our church family because they don't necessarily agree with our view on this. I understand that and I get that. And I get that at times it can be abrasive, but I have made no bones that the responsibility is really on the husband, not on the woman, not on the wife. I'm sorry if I'm misusing that word even. should be wife. Because some see this and say, oh, women submit to men as to the Lord. That's not what the text says. It doesn't say that, you know, in, in government, men, women submit to men. No. That's not what it says. It says in marriage, wives submit to husbands, each to their own husband. doesn't say that this is applicable to a work situation. doesn't say that this is applicable to a government situation. I would say on that, the Bible is actually really silent. It does say submit to the authorities that God has put in place. That's what it says, Ephesians chapter 6. And so let's talk about instructions for husbands next. Instructions for husbands. First of all, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I just heard every man go, oh boy. That's the call. That's the call to us as husbands. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Let's do a little review here. How does Christ love the church? Well, Paul talks about it. He gave himself up for her. What does that mean, gave himself up for her? I'm pretty sure it means he gave himself up for her. Did, did you catch that? He gave himself up for her. Do you hear any opportunity for marriage to be about you men in that? We get, I got made fun of all the time on the job site. Oh, he's whipped because he will serve his wife or he'll do anything for his wife. I'm like... I'm not whipped. This is what the Bible tells me to do. That means I think about what my wife's needs are before I think about my own. And I am broken in this, friend. There are lots of ways 
that I can't do this, and I need to hear this again and again, and lift it up, and seen rightly. But he sets aside, Christ Jesus sets aside the Messiah, God of the universe, the one who created us, the one in charge of us, the one in absolute authority over us, sets aside what's best for him and gives what's best for us. That's the picture of what it means to be a husband. Play this out in your own life. Is that why you got married? So you could set aside yourself? You could have less of you? So that you could set aside your own needs? So that when you were tired, you could say, it's not about me, it's about her. It's not about me, it's about her. He says, sanctify her. That's, a, that's a, a big, long biblical word that simply means to, to cleanse. That's why you said that he might sanctify her in verse 26 there, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. This means, and again, like don't misunderstand kind of some of the metaphor, but that your role as a husband is to be that you scrub your wife with the Bible. You help her with your sin. Think about that. When she's struggling, it is your job to help her in whatever way she needs. With the word. I don't think this means, babe, whatever you want to do is fine. I don't think that's what it means. Babe, whatever you think is great, do it. No, it means, hun, hun, wait a second. What's, what's some of the issue here? I need to listen like Jesus listens to me. Well, what does the Bible say about that particular issue? Well, let's go there. I know so many guys are like, I don't know. I don't know. Figure it out. The text says it's your job to figure it out. It's my job to figure this out. That doesn't mean, by the way, ladies, that it's like, I don't need to know my Bible because I'll just get married, I'll have a husband, and he'll figure it all out. That's not what that text means. Everyone's responsible for themselves. That means when your wife is confused about how does this play out, your job is I will do my best to figure this out or find someone who does know. I will learn this myself. Guys, if there's any reason for you to know your Bible, it should be at least, at the very least, so that when your wife has a question about how to apply the gospel to her own life, you're not confused by this, but that you at least are in the habit of knowing where to go. And you sanctify her. I want to relate this even to the whole book. And the, the whole book is about how Jesus develops a plan. You know, it didn't say in chapter 1, it doesn't say Jesus created us from the very beginning so that when we finally figured out our way, he could then join us and support in what we were doing. That is not what the Bible says. It says he predestined her. He had a plan for his people. He developed a plan. Now, I know what you're thinking. And I just talked to Leslie about this yesterday. I said, you know how this has gone when you tell them what the plan is and just be like, follow this plan. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> right? It doesn't work that way. It doesn't go very well at all. But here's how it goes well. We say, what do you need? What can I do to make sure that you hear the word, the good word? What can I do to make sure you know how to live as God's calling you to live. How do I, what are your gifts? What are your strengths? What are your needs? Explain to me what I could do better in order to serve you more. That's what the text is saying. Lastly, love her like yourself. For he who loved his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes. You hear that word, nourish? That means to take care of. 
You say, well, that's, you know, self-esteem. What we're missing is that there's just lack of self-esteem. I don't believe that's true, honestly. I don't believe we're missing self-esteem. Self-esteem is a right view of yourself, not a puffed-up view of yourself. Most of the time when we're talking about things like self-esteem in our culture, we're saying say things that aren't true about you till they become true. That's what self-esteem has become in our culture. Right self-esteem is understanding who you really are and who you are in relationship with God. And truthfully, we're always in it for ourselves, naturally, aren't we? Say, well, my problem isn't that I love my flesh too much. Yes, it is. That's why you think it's all about you. I know, because I think it's all about me. But here is what the Scripture says. The way you would take care of your own needs, if you want to show her Jesus, you take care of her needs as if they were your own needs. You look after what she needs before you look after what you need. Tell you, any good leader, they'll tell you this in leadership school as well. You need to take care of the needs of your people before you look after your own selfish ambitions. And this is, that's a principle that I believe comes from the word of God, from Jesus' mouth. We need to take care of our wives' needs before our own. Now, let me say this. This is impossible, isn't it? From both sides. Impossible. Anyone like, crap. <laughs> First of all, it's so abrasive that I'm still having a hard time hearing it. Or secondly, I'd like to believe it, I'd like to hear it, but it's so difficult. Secondly, you don't know my relationship that I have with my spouse, Trev, so who are you to tell me what to do? I'm not here to tell you what to do, friends. I know there are marriages that are way harder than mine. I know there are issues with this. I wish we could spend the whole afternoon unpacking them all. I know there are terrible husbands out there. I know there are, honestly, I know there are wives who just, it doesn't matter what you do. They just don't want to listen to anything. They want their own way. And you don't, you, you go right back to the very beginning of Scripture and you see this battle in the curse that Jesus said, because you originally chose your own way, you are going to be cursed for the rest of your life. You each are going to want your own way. And this is going to be impossible unless you hear how much Jesus Christ loved you. It'll be impossible. And even when you hear how much Jesus loves you, it'll be difficult at best to even start to model some of these things, which was why we have to end with the gospel or you will all be hopeless. You will all go and say, I can't do this. I have a terrible husband. He doesn't know how to lead. Doesn't even want to come to church. Doesn't want to read his Bible. Doesn't want to show me any of this stuff. Look, I know this is painful. Why do you think we planted a church? We knew there weren't enough men out there. I know that some of you are not married exclusively because you have a right view of marriage and you are looking for a husband and they're just are hard to find. I know that. And I know that this is painful because you're like, yes, I believe this. I just have not seen a man yet. I know this is painful, but again, I go back to what I said about singleness, what I said about friendship, that if you don't understand that actually this isn't really ultimately about you, this is about you following Jesus and allowing Jesus to have ultimate authority in your life and submitting to that view. And only under that sense will any of this make sense or even be remotely doable. But for both people, husbands, wives, we both need to hear how much Jesus loves us. Husbands, we don't need to hear that we are, <laughs> we have submissive wives, or we need to have submissive wives. What we need to hear is that Jesus Christ gave us a gift and we have been disobedient. We have been selfish. We have been arrogant. We have been abusive. We have been negligent in every way. And yet Jesus has loved us and cared for us like sons. 
that Jesus, out of his great love for us, did not treat us like a, a, as baggage, but treated us like sons of the Most High God. Friends, we, we need to submit to that. Men, we need to submit to this idea of Jesus. We need to submit to that view of Jesus. Ladies, in spite of all that we as men think you're great, you have faults. I know it. I'm raising two girls. I figured out, finally, at the age of 40, girls have faults too. And yet, Jesus loves them. And I am amazed even as watching this in myself, as broken as I am, as arrogant as I am, as selfish as I am, there is something that happens when that's your kid. You overlook all kinds of things out of your pure love. I had a conversation with a couple of moms here yesterday. Say, I said, they're not innocent, but man, are they ever adorable, hey? Children, when they're your children, they're loved. Ladies, ultimately, your allegiance is not highest to your husband. It's to your Savior, Jesus Christ who despite all of your faults, will be a far better husband than anyone you can ever find. So why this, all this talk about marriage? And I would say this. It's to show this picture of, of the great love of Jesus Christ for his people. I say this in marriage ceremonies all the time. My hope for you, and I'll turn to the man, and I'll say my hope for you is that when people go, what does it mean? What does it mean to have Jesus care for me and love me? My hope for you, man, is that your wife says, I can't think of a better example than my husband. That's my hope. And then I'll turn to the lady and I'll say, woman, my hope for you is that when someone says, what does it mean to follow? To follow Jesus. To submit to his leadership. To show the glory of God. That they will be able to hear from your lips. I can't think of a better leader than my husband. Husband, I can't think of a better follower than my wife. Wife, I can't think of a better leader than my husband. That's my hope. That's my hope. I believe this will be absolutely impossible unless we first all, man, woman, submit our lives to Jesus Christ. Otherwise, this is just pure morality. Just pure, like, try this, do this. Maybe if you just do this, it'll have a better marriage. I say, forget that. Submit your life to Jesus Christ first. He is better than any spouse you will ever have. This is actually how then it is described. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Because Paul is trying to say, you are all on mission. What role do you play in this mission? What way are you going to reflect the love of that Savior? Are you going to willingly do it? Are you going to embrace the role that God has given to you naturally? Or are you going to try your own way? And my hope is that we can at least be a culture where we're learning to submit ourselves to the leadership of Jesus Christ together. That we can call one another out that we can ask and gently help one another, that we can create this idea of not of, uh, of a too high of a view of marriage where people aren't real people unless they're married, and not a too low view of marriage where it's just so useless that no one even gives it a try, but a right view of marriage that says, if we are working at submitting ourselves, if we're willingly submitting ourselves to Jesus Christ, then this is working and, and we're glorifying God. And guess what? God is so gracious, he gives us joy through it all.
I said, we have played this out in our marriage, haven't we, hon? Year number one, we discovered there were some things about the way God had said, and, and we said, we're going to submit to this. My marriage gives me the most joy of anything that I'm a part of in this whole world. I didn't deserve it. I couldn't earn it. I make tons of mistakes regularly. And yet in spite of all that, there's joy. This is because God is just such a gracious God. And so I'll call the band now because my time is well over. And here's what I want to say. I want you to hear not that if you're married, you can suddenly glorify God. I want you to hear that because Jesus Christ has paid the price for you, because he has provided the greatest example of love ever, because he is in both, in all ways, the greatest savior, the greatest spouse, better than any spouse, we can have life. We celebrate this each week because we remember his death. That's the great paradox of the Christian life, is that because someone else died, I can now have life. And so that's what we celebrate. We celebrate it with bread and wine or juice. And we say, because Jesus has provided this relationship, because he has initiated like a good husband should initiate, because he has cared for us like a good husband has cared for us, we can now, as his bride, collectively as his bride, not as individuals, but collectively, we can respond in love, in submission to our Savior. If you believe that this morning, then I invite you to come and partake as we sing and as we continue to respond to our Savior. Friends, if that's not you yet, I would say this has nothing magical about it that can suddenly make you submissive. That's something that happens in your heart. And if you still have questions about this, I invite you. Come and pray with someone. Come and talk with someone through this. Our prayer counselors would love to chat with you about that. So as the band leads us, let's respond.